can we even stop using plastic? You know, if I'm aware of how much plastic I'm using and how much of a carbon footprint that's creating, and if I get rewarded, would I be incentivized to maybe look at alternative products or, or the same products even, but with a different type of packaging? Welcome, everybody. Today, I'm talking with Steve Peer. Uh, Steve Peer is with 2B0, which is a company building a recycling unit to bring us to zero carbon, zero plastic, and zero waste. Welcome to the show today, Steve. Hey, Brett. Thanks very much for having me here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so can you tell me a little bit about 2B0? What are you guys doing? Yeah, absolutely. So 2B0 was um, founded by our CEO, Millerad Arcevic. And Millerad came up with a very innovative way for material to be recycled. And, and when I say recycled, it's, we're thinking about the problem that we're solving. So the problem is that recycling currently is very complicated. We have to have a number of different blue bins, different types of materials have to go into it. The volume of the material is so high that we need to have municipalities pick it up at least every week. And even so, when all things are said and done, there's a ton of material that does not get recycled. It ends up in landfills, or even worse, it ends up in the ocean. So what Millerad came up with is this really innovative way to take material, automatically recognize it, sort it, and then process it based on the material type. And he actually patented uh, this technology. So to give you an example, let's say, for example, you have aluminum cans. Um, which is like the kind of like a good base point. So you have your recycling appliance, or as we call it, the, the recycling robot. You put the can inside the appliance, and on a touch screen, like about the size of an iPad, it will tell you right away, oh, I know what this is. It's an aluminum can. And it uses a number of different ways to identify that it's an aluminum can. Then from there, it will process it by moving it into the unit and actually grinding it up. And the consumer gets to have this amazing experience of watching a can get ground up on the screen. Um, and they'll be able to share that video with their friends if they want, because it's kind of a cool process. In the process of grinding up the can, it actually makes the aluminum smaller in volume and of a higher value to companies that are doing recycling. And it also means that municipalities wouldn't have to come and pick this stuff up as regularly as they are right now, which again, in many places is at least once a week or so. Um, we're trying to make recycling to the point where it's a pleasurable experience. There's rewarding for, there, there's, it's actually a rewarding experience. So consumers are rewarded for recycling through our partners. And also um, just the overall experience is, is exciting and unique. Because again, the problem right now is that a lot of places that even do recycling are doing it in such a way that it's it's not providing a net reduction in carbon to the planet. So we absolutely have to rethink the way that we're doing it. So by using uh, artificial intelligence, we're able to develop these learning sets that essentially get smarter and smarter over time and recognizing the material based on a number of different data points. And, uh, and data is actually another thing that I'll talk about a little bit further. But um, yeah, if you have any questions, please let me know. Yeah, so so basically you're using AI to 
to filter and select exactly what that particular recycling um, depository is meant to be receiving and then grinding it down and turning it into a more condensed form so that it is more valuable and also doesn't need to be picked up as frequently because there's less you know air in it exactly um, but again depending on the material so in the case of aluminum it'll be ground up in the case of steel cans which are like your average day soup can vegetable cans things like that they'll likely be ground up as well in the case of paper and cardboard we're going to need to coordinate with the various municipalities and recycling centers and find out what format that they would prefer to receive it in. They may just to have they may prefer to have it compressed, for example, as opposed to ground up. Um, but that's the really exciting thing is that as time goes on, uh, as we continue to develop the 2B0 recycling appliance over time, it will actually become smarter and be able to do more things. We want to make sure that the overall experience is just simpler than even putting dishes in a dishwasher, which to me even requires a little bit of thinking. It's like, where am I going to put this plate, this cup, and so forth? We want people just to be able to put things inside the robot, and the robot does the rest. Right. I mean, it makes me think about the way that we do recycling today, even like home recycling, which is uh, a lot of what it turns out to be is that the recycling bin is more of like a feel-good box because what happens in a lot of cases is people put things in the recycling and it's actually like d depending on where you are, which municipality this is, there's a lot of different requirements. And if you miss any of those requirements, like you put the milk jugs in or you have tape on your cardboard or, um, you know, Tetra packs that are lined with aluminum or whatever, um, any, any amount of those can make the entire like, block of recycling that they like they, they break things down into like certain crates certain size crates and if there's like a couple of items that are prohibited or not usable then they throw out the entire crate so what actually oh, happens yeah. in practice is very different than what we feel like is going to happen when we're dropping things in our recycling bin so this the sorting thing actually is really important yeah i, I agree 100 percent with what you just said and it's really important for consumers to realize you know like a lot of these recycling programs literally are feel-good programs. So the city will pick this stuff up in blue boxes, but the blue boxes or blue bins are actually filled with material that just simply can't be recycled because if it's either a mixture of material um, or it's been contaminated in one form or another with things like meat or cheese, and as a result, um, can't be recycled. So consumers think, oh, I can buy whatever I want whenever I want, and then I'll just put this in a blue bin and the city will take care of the rest of it. But the city is looking more from a political perspective to let the voters think that they're actually doing something in a positive way. And, and to be fair, they, they are in, in some respects, um, but we're seeing, so for example, right now, we're seeing like the plastics industry, which is an offshoot of the oil and gas industry. They're actually lobbying governments right now not to ban things like single-use plastic bags. Of course, they want to have governments not ban these things so consumers can continue to consume them. And then within the context of recycling, we think, well, we can use as many bags as we want. We can use as many plastic containers or packaging as we want. We'll just put it in the blue bin. But the reality is, is that those blue bins, as I mentioned before, the material does not end up getting recycled and quite often ends up in landfill. And in other cases, you know, can, can be in a, in a place that we don't want it to be, like the ocean, for example. We used to ship tons and tons of this stuff over to China until very recently, and, and China just said, no, that's it, we're not taking it anymore. So it's actually causing a big problem here in North America and Canada and the U.S. Um, you mentioned, you know, how complicated it can be to recycle. I lived in 
Waterloo, Ontario, Canada for a few years, which is a great, great city. It's actually kind of our Silicon Valley north where Shopify is located. Uh, Research in Motion, BlackBerry started there and a few other. We were at the University of Waterloo and a whole bunch of other really cool technology-focused institutions there. Recycling, when I lived there, I had to have five different containers in the kitchen, one for compost, one for paper and cardboard, uh, one for flimsy plastic, one for regular what they call containers, and then one for garbage. And then I just, uh, it was just like, I had to think about it like every single time. And then my parents who are, you know, getting up there in age, oh, I had to go over to their house and help them sort it all out as well. So it was a very complex process. And when all things were said and done, I knew instinctively that a lot of this material was not going to be recycled. It was just going to end up, we felt good because it was being picked up in blue bins, but it was just going to end up like in a landfill afterwards. So 2B0 is a startup. And what we're doing right now is we're looking for venture capital partners. We're, we're, we're trying to scout out VC firms that focus on green initiatives with clean tech, for example, which is a little bit riskier than, than, than other types of startups. Um, and we're looking for these partnerships that can help us take this concept and grow with it. And one of the really cool things is that we're not the first to market. And to me, that's really cool because it shows that there's already an existing nascent industry which is starting to to form around this so 2b0 is oriented um, towards homes offices and retail locations we can envision this being like in a coffee shop for example where customers can take their cans and plastic bottles and then put it inside the recycling unit and watch it get ground up or processed and so we think that the market for this is absolutely huge and uh, partnering with, with municipalities is going to be part of that But as any type of startup, you know, when we're searching for funding, part of my job is not only to do the research and to kind of lay out as a CTO, lay out like our technology stack and framework, but also um, make sure that we're on a path to profitability. And as we move from step to step, also do things like reducing risk. So whomever is investing with us, we want to mitigate risk as much as possible moving forward. And one of the most exciting things I can think of right away is the fact that there there's already an existing market for this type of appliance that's out there already? Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me what that market looks like. What's what's the business model? Like, do yeah, you do you sell the machines, lease the machines? Are they part of a, like a subscription for picking up uh, picking we're, up materials? We're thinking um, that that we can sell the machine, we can lease the machine almost at cost, and have a hugely profitable business model just based on things like. Um, adding additional value to the unit. So that can be in terms of extended warranties, that can be providing supplies and materials, services to the unit. And then a very big part of our business model is the data. And the data part of it is huge because we have all these data aggregators that are out there right now that are collecting data from all different points. I mean, it's, it's getting ridiculous almost, and I shouldn't even laugh. But if let's, let's use the, you know, like an example of putting a photo on Instagram, which is part of Facebook, mm-hmm. that photo was analyzed for all of its possible metadata, anything which is there. There are now AI engines that will analyze every part of that photo, including the type of lamps you have, where the lamps, you know, where you actually bought them from. Where did you get that couch from? Does that look old? Let's see my face. Does my face look like it's a little bit haggard? Any type of data they can get, they want to collect that data and then they want to aggregate it so they can make prediction, use their prediction models and then kind of 
understand what your behavior may be and, and kind of reduce their risk as far as whatever type of business is leveraging that data. But what we're not seeing yet, to my knowledge, is analyzing consumer waste data. We're not collecting it. We're not correlating it. We're not analyzing it. Mm. We like to think that we're an ethical company so that our data, whatever we collect, is going to be used to benefit the consumer. Um, we certainly think that there's a market for it as well, but there's an ethical market for that data. So if you're putting in 100 beer cans a week, maybe you're drinking too much beer. Um, maybe, you know, we should put that on our on our mobile app that, hey, maybe, you know, you want to consider this is not necessarily like a good consum- con- consumption habit, for lack of a better term. Um, and, and I personally don't go through 100 cans of beer, just for the record, in case anyone's listening. Um, so as far as... Sounds as like, as there's, as like there's a, as far the, as like, just again, like understanding, sorry, but say it again. Yeah. I was gonna say, it sounds, sounds like there's a lot of different ways that that data could go. Like there's ethical cases, there's unethical cases. Like, you know, if I, it would be a horror show if the government could detect from your beer can use when you're having parties or something. <laughs> and like, there's I, a lot I, of like 100%. a big brother element to that. There is very much so, and but also so to really know where our yeah, to, but also just really know where our where our recycling goes, like where where our like if you could even link in an individual package from like which store it came from to where it eventually ended up, um, whether that ended up in a landfill or whether whether it made it back into into the system somehow got recycled, then you could even track some of the like you could track aspects of the packaging. Like, is it obvious to somebody that this is recyclable? Is it obvious how to recycle this effectively so that it is not rejected by the system? Um, And then that that could lead to being able to adjust the products or adjust recyclable products to have better outcomes. I I agree 100%. So... um you know, you just you just touched on something which which would be part of our ultimate business model, which be would be, for example, like right now with um, like things like blockchain technology, we're able to track anything anywhere at any time very reliably. And if we use RFID tagging with some of the products, we could literally track it from inception to to end of life, and then find out is that material being recycled properly, or is it ending up, as you say, like in a landfill? Mm-hmm. Um, that that type of analysis we think is critical, not only from the standpoint that that manufacturers and and companies that are producing consumer goods would be very very interested in, um, but also from the standpoint of to be zero helping to educate consumers of their consumption habits. We take so many things for granted and we're not really not necessarily as self-aware as we should be about how our consumption habits are affecting the planet. How much carbon are we adding because we've chosen a plastic container over something with a different type of container like glass or aluminum. So so I want to be clear as well, like when we talk about recycling plastic, it's a different type of recycling altogether. So glass can be recycled, no problem. Paper, no problem. Aluminum, there's there's never enough aluminum in the market. No matter how much we recycle, there's always a demand for more aluminum. In the case of plastic, it's a very, very fine line because we want to be able to recycle it. In many cases, it can be recycled, but there's only so much within these recyclable, like, uh, like a, for lack of a better term, life cycle. It can only be recycled once or twice, and then that's it. It can't be recycled again. So then the big question comes down to, 
can we even stop using plastic? You know, if I'm aware of how much plastic I'm using and how much of a carbon footprint that's creating, and if I get rewarded, would I be incentivized to maybe look at alternative products or or the same products even, but with a different type of packaging? Um, we even saw like in Waterloo, for example, there's a, there at least one store there that has no packaging whatsoever. You literally walk in with your own containers, they weigh the containers beforehand, and then you walk out with stuff in the containers that you're reusing. Mm-hmm. So it's a no package option, which to me is fantastic. And then, of course, you have other retailers now that are popping up everywhere with sustainable types of packaging. So it's like we know we have to wrap something up in such a way that it has to get out there. You need to put it in the container. You can't carry around shampoo in your hand all day. Um, But at the same time, the type of container that's being used for that is a sustainable choice. And Mm. helping consumers to, to become more aware of these choices, we think, is absolutely critical as well. Right. So, so tell me a little bit more about the technical aspects of, uh, of this device. What are, what are, yeah. Yeah. Dive into that a little bit. Sure. Definitely. Well, we're in the, we have a proof of concept right now. So the proof of concept is we can put like an aluminum can in and gets ground up. We're able to do, um, we've actually been able to measure a 15 to one volume reduction in grinding up this aluminum. Um, the AI part of it is, is really exciting. So, depending on the, on the number of different uh, sensors that we can use, the types of sensors that we can use. So everything from like video sensing, uh, we're looking at also um, if the product has a barcode on it, we have a barcode scanner on the outside of the unit because that could always be like a source of truth. So as our AI engine is developing, as it becomes more intelligent, as we have more data sets that go in, as it learns more, it, it can have some data from barcodes to go back and fall back against. It's like, well, I thought there was a soup can, but it could be an aluminum can. Mm. But the barcode being the source of truth shows it's actually an, an aluminum can. That makes our system smarter. So we've prototyped our 2B0 recycling robot with an infrared scanner um, on the outside for now. But as we get further into it, we can see that going away as the data sets become larger, as the, as the learning algorithms become smarter over time. Uh, we're using weight as well. We're not doing anything as far as um, like isotopes. Uh, we don't want to burn anything inside the unit. Um, but again, there's like, I, and I don't want to get into too much of the proprietary stuff either because that's like our secret sauce as well. Uh, but still very, very exciting because uh, there's, actually a, a, there's actually a company called Amprobotics, which is um, hitting the municipal markets right now doing a similar type of thing, but they're doing it on a larger scale. So they've got camera sensing technology for municipalities. And as all this recyclable material comes in on conveyor belts, they're automatically recognizing it. And they're actually using robotics to pick this material from the conveyor, conveyor belt off based on its material identification. So again, from a startup perspective, this technology already exists. Like we, we're not the first ones to market. And in doing so, I want to stress to our, our VC partners, you know, that that's a huge risk and or a huge risk reduction as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as far as uh, like once the material is encapsulated inside the 2B0 recycling robot, then it's a matter of determining how often the material has to be picked up. We can envision even not even necessarily having regularly scheduled pickups. It may just be a more a matter of, well, we know sometime next week we're going to have enough glass to schedule a glass pickup, for example, mm-hmm. or we're going to have enough for a steel can pickup. 
we want to make it convenient for the consumer. We don't want to make this any more than, you know, I'm just putting stuff in a dishwasher or stuff in a washing machine. We don't want them to have to think about it too much because if it becomes too much work, then there's going to be a lack of engagement, we think. Yeah. Uh, and you want to have like a positive feeling associated with it. Um, like I've noticed so. my, myself once, once I started to learn more about like the, um, like the challenges of recycling with the blue bins and like, if you get it wrong, you're going to end up causing not even your trash, but like your neighbor's trash to also be thrown out or recycling to be thrown out. Like then there's this, like every time I go to throw something out into the recycling bin, I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Am I messing this up? So like having, having a positive associated experience, like, Oh, look, it just got ground up and it's accepted by this machine that, you know, I now know that this was the right, you know, thing to put in there and it's part of this supply chain that i can even see some of the data on and even see some data on my own usage exactly yeah that you, you you've just uh, you've just illustrated it perfectly you know and, and we can actually see people getting so excited about this that they can become addicted to it you know it's like oh i love watching these cans get ground up do we have any more cans can i find some more cans to put in there you know and then actually sharing um, like the videos of the material being ground up on social media as well, which we would actually encourage. We want to kind of create like this groundswell movement around 2B0 and and the positive, you know, user experience, I guess, from a technical perspective, but like a fully engaging, exciting experience overall. Hmm. Is there any like economic incentive for people to use this? Do they get anything like deposits back on cans or do they get any fee from, you know, any of the... the scrap aluminum that gets returned so we've actually we've actually looked at many different aspects of that and i just mentioned the convenience factor so let's say for example you know there was an arrangement we have a test market we've made an arrangement with a local recycle center that for every pound of aluminum you're going to get paid i'm going to make up a number a dollar there would be an incentive for you to do that and then there would be an expectation that you would actually somehow be responsible for getting that to the the recycle uh, plant or they would have to come pick it up. But, but that would take revenue away from the cities. And we're thinking that we're going to have to partner with the cities for this to be truly effective. So when you say, would there be like an incentive, the ultimate um, would be for municipalities to realize because they're not doing pickups as often, because the material they're collecting is worth more there would be a great incentive for them to provide every household and business with a tax rebate on uh, on an annual basis. And in doing so, the 2B0 recycling appliance becomes not only like net zero as far as the cost is concerned, but it could actually be a revenue generator. I don't, I don't want our business model, however, to be completely dependent on understanding that we need to get a tax rebate from municipalities, right. nor consumers getting, you know, whatever revenue they can get from the recycling. Um, we want this to be something which is is in such in such a way that when we roll it out, it's so exciting there and, and it's so positive as far as, you know, for the planet is concerned, that they're they're kind of doing it on their own. The if they can like if I buy a washer and dryer, I'm not expecting to get my money back on that. If I buy a dishwasher, I'm not expecting to get like a return on investment. So the fact that there is that ability to do that with a 2B0 recycling appliance, we think is a very exciting possibility, but that would require, again, a partnership with municipalities. And we would have to negotiate each one, I would imagine, 
Um, and then if that can be done, then, you know, we're, we're looking at a huge amount of market penetration. Right. So is there, is there a single product or are there, is there like a range of products? Like there's like maybe a home one, a commercial one, or is it all? We're, we're, yeah. And, and that's a fantastic question. We're envisioning uh, a unit for, for residential, um, a larger one for things like offices where you'd have more people using it on a regular basis. And then in a retail location, you'd have not only more people using it, but you'd have a high volume of material going into it. So there'd be a different one for retail. And then this would be an evolving product over time as well from the perspective of, you know, let's let's get our MVP out there, our minimum viable product. Our MVP may be aluminum and steel cans only to get it up and running and show that this this is not only doable, but it's it's doable in such a way that's very positive all the way around. And more importantly, can provide that ROI as, as far as like our, our VC partners are concerned. Then when we have the MVP up and running, we can, and again, I'm just using just two examples. We may end up, you know, launching with five different materials for all I know mm -hmm. as we get further into the research and development. Um, but once we have our MVP up and running, we can envision having different types of um, recycling and processing depending on locales even. There may be certain locales, for example, um, geographically, where there's a lot more composting material than there is plastic. There may be a lot more glass then there is aluminum. So we'd want to be able to customize these over time, but we don't want to get so granular that like our cost, you know, goes that we're, we're looking at supply chain management from the perspective of the more of these units that we have out there, the far, like the, the less expensive they become for us to manufacture and distribute. And then of course the consumers benefit from a lower cost as well. Right. So to, I'm, I'm curious to learn more about your, your tech team. Um, and like what what the team structure is and how you bridge the you know sort of the gap between the the hardware um and like the firmware and then the software and then like the iot connectivity stuff um what what does that look like and what was your journey in building the team from from having the the idea to where you guys are now yeah absolutely uh so Let's look at it from a consumer product perspective. I, I learned years ago, I developed um, a neat little software application that, and this is before the web, that would help people that were playing recreational baseball, softball, three pitch. It would just let them track their statistics. And it was good. People who, who played baseball and softball recreationally would go to their games and then kind of have like a little pad. They'd tick things off and then enter them into a computer afterwards. And we sold this actually at the retail level. And it was very well received. But one of the things, since I was so new, I was in my mid-20s when I did this, I was so new to retailing, I didn't realize that the package was far more important than the product inside the package. And this is pertinent to our discussion about packaging in general. So we just had a thin little cardboard box. And, and the graphic on the outside wasn't even that professional looking. So people would perceive the quality of the product inside based on that kind of unprofessional thin packaging on the outside and we didn't do nearly as well as we could have if we had a professional package designer so the, the reason i'm using this example is with the 2b0 recycling robot we want the exterior to be sexy we want the product design to be as important as the user experience when people are looking at this we want them to think whoa this looks really cool this, this is something that I want to have in my home or my office. It, we don't want it to be so ugly that they're looking at it and thinking, oh, you know, 
we don't want to have this or I can't imagine using this type of thing. So part of our product design team is having designers that have the, the same vision that we do at the exterior. And I know it seems very, very superficial, but the exterior of this thing has to be very, very compelling. Mm-hmm. The, the inside of it, uh, we're partnering with different engineering firms that focus on robotics, that focus on material sensing, and also um, the, the ability to be able to, to grind this stuff up and process it or process it in a different way if that's the case for certain other types of materials like paper and cardboard, for example. So that's like the, the mechanical engineering part of it, the robotics engineering. Um, for the IoT part and the machine learning part, uh, we're actually developing partnerships right now uh, with just third parties. So we haven't actually, we don't have the investment yet to, to bring on full-time developers to do the, the machine learning part, to do the IoT part. We do have a proof of concept native mobile app that we've developed that will scan barcodes and then be able to record the type of product based on the barcode scanning. Um, and it uses like a, a UPC code API on the back end. But the team that we're putting together, we, we're going to be end up using um, people in, inside 2B0 and also, more importantly, partnering with, with some other people that are outside that have done similar things in the past that are going to allow us to scale as well. Because we can see this scaling very, very quickly. And um, to give you an example of, of just my own personal experience, like I've been sold on serverless because i think serverless like I, I didn't know what it was at first it was like serverless what does that mean and i've been doing stuff on a server forever and then when i realized oh we can host a front-end application like a web application or an, or a native mobile application the front end can be hosted in such a way that it's available on demand it's scalable instantaneously we can go from zero to a million requests per second with no downtime with no load balancing like that to me was like amazing. And then the same with the back end as well, using things like AWS Lambda microservices on the back end, uh, DynamoDB as opposed to SQL, just keeping it very, very clean, a tight, a tight footprint as far as all of our applications, um, a data lake for the data collection part of it. So something like Redshift. And then as far as applying our machine learning uh, to the, the, like the kind of like the massive data that we're going to be collecting, I'm still open to suggestions for that. So I've been evaluating different things like Athena, for example. Um, but we don't want to be tied necessarily to everything with AWS as well. Like we're, we're certainly open to other other alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what? So I'm sitting. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, what is what is your team size right now? Um, and are you guys all distributed because COVID and everything is this? How how yes, has we, this past yeah. year been for you guys? Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting experience. Just like just like everyone, it's a different experience for different people in different regions. Um, so I was actually uh, working on a contract in New York City, and then COVID hit, and my family is actually um, in Louisiana, and that's where I am right now. So today we're onto our third day of an ice storm, which is really unusual here, and that's because of climate change. Uh, coming from Canada originally, you know, an ice storm just means you kind of hunker down. If you have to drive somewhere, you drive, but you just do it more slowly and more carefully. But here in the South, it's a huge deal because they're not used to it and there's no infrastructure to handle it. So we've seen massive blackouts over in Texas. Mm-hmm. There's been rolling blackouts here in Louisiana. And that's just from a power perspective. When people are driving on the streets, it's a, it's a whole other type of 
um, horror altogether. I used to kind of like chuckle at it, thinking, oh man, just slow down or whatever. It's not not that big of a deal. But it is a big deal here because people are simply not used to it. And it's a very dangerous situation. This is specifically because of climate change. And of course, Louisiana is also under intense pressure from climate change from the rising sea level. I lived in New Orleans for about 13 years. That city is already, you know, below sea level to begin with, let alone what's happening right now, like all over the world. These these coastal cities are, are under threat by the rising sea levels. And in places like New Orleans, where the, the hurricanes are coming more frequently, they're they're stronger, the state is disappearing. There's like something like a couple of football fields a day are going underwater permanently. That's That, that landmass is not coming back. Hmm. And then when you combine that with the storms, with the rise in sea levels, this is probably one of the worst places to be in the United States as far as uh, being exposed to, to climate change. So it's, it's, it makes me even more passionate, you know, that we have to do something. We need to all of us collectively think about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Are we buying bottled water? Why are we buying bottled water? Can we use a filter? Can we put something on our taps at home that give us good tasting cold water that doesn't require us to be using all of this plastic up? Um, when I'm at the grocery store, am I going to go to the soup aisle and buy canned soup, or am I just going to make my own homemade soup? It may be a bit more effort, uh, but in the but in the end run, I'm ending up making hopefully better tasting soup on my good days, which are you know most most of my days, and also creating less garbage, like less of a footprint. And again, we we all have to start thinking in in these kinds of terms, and it's very very difficult because. You know, you mentioned COVID. Well, man, before COVID, we were all just trying to earn a living. We were trying to put food on the table. We were trying to deal with whatever we had to deal with in our personal lives. And now we have COVID and climate change. It's like, so what, you know, where do the priorities lie? Mm -hmm. So if we can develop something with 2B0 where recycling becomes so second nature and such a pleasurable experience, then we think we can reverse a lot of, of these consumption habits that are out there right now and simply make make the world safer. Like, let's start even getting carbon negative. You know, like our motto right now, to be zero, zero would be fantastic. Uh, it's it's a big goal. If we can even get negative as far as our, our, our carbon consumption, um, a carbon footprint, then by all means, let's, let's look at ways of doing that as well. Yeah, I think an, an interesting challenge for the climate change like process that we're all going through is shifting from what the narrative around climate change has been, which has just been like, you know, we're screwed, we're doing all these bad things to ourselves and to our environment, and it's like a wicked problem and nobody knows how to solve it, which is just, that just makes it really uncomfortable to even think about. So people don't think that they can even bother to make a dent with their own personal lives. And then when you stack that with the fact that to alleviate that pain of like the reality of climate change, so many of the solutions have been sort of greenwashed solutions or feel good solutions. So then you end up having people who are resistant to those solutions because they see through them. And that makes those people look like they're actually just being like a climate change nihilist or, you know, or obstructionist. And like to, I, I think it'd be really interesting. I'm starting to see a lot more of of this type of thing that you guys are building start to come up where people are like, hey, you know what? We can actually do this in a way that feels good. Um, yes. And increases, you know, like it brings more value to our value chain. And huge. Can associate positive feelings with what we're doing 
without it just being a greenwashed type of positive feeling. Yeah, absolutely. I agree hundred percent. And it kind of drives me crazy because, you know, like I'm on social media all the time and I'm seeing these, these large multinational corporations and they come up with something that with a story that gets repeated over and over again in social media. So for the one today I saw was Coca-Cola is no longer going to be using cardboard. That's not recyclable. They're, they're focusing on providing recyclable material. And the first thing I think of right away is you're still using plastic. Okay. So that's not going away. The second thing is how, how much is, how widely is this going to be adopted? Is this just like a kind of a test run for you to get some social media buzz? Or is this a true, is this a true measure that's going to be adopted internationally that, that, as you mentioned, actually has like an actual impact Greenwashing is all over the place. And I think that as consumers, we need to be more aware of, of, of that entire process of greenwashing. And we don't want to be caught up with that at 2B0 as well. Like I, I often think if we're if our system is so cool and awesome and handles plastic so well that people go out and buy more plastic, I've done the opposite of, of what I intend to do. Um, we don't want to greenwash the, the, the recycle aspect of, of plastic and to make people think that they can buy as much as they want or consume as much as they want. We want to actually help them be more aware of their consumption habits mm. and then actually make changes to those consumption habits as well. And um, yeah, getting caught up in some of these greenwashing things. Some of them are amazingly cool. Don't get me wrong. I saw one, um, I think it was on Mashable, where you put an orange in a machine and it squeezes the juice out and then actually makes a cup out of the skin. And I was like, yeah, I want one of those, you know. I'll drink my orange juice out of a cup made from the orange peel. You know, that's that sounds really cool, but it probably costs four million dollars. And you know, it's just it's, you know, it's great buzz. But but where's like the added value? Like, where's that true sustainability part of that? I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah, the carbon footprint of producing the machine is probably much greater than whatever yes. reusable cup you might have used to drink your orange juice otherwise. Yeah. A absolutely. I, I signed up for a subscription service actually about a year and a half ago um, that was delivering things like uh, laundry detergent and Kleenex tissues and toilet paper and the Kleenex and the toilet paper were made from bamboo and, you know, the the, the shampoos and, and, the, and the laundry soap and things like that were put in containers that were supposedly 100% recyclable. And because it was a delivery service, all this stuff was coming in cardboard boxes but then they had boxes inside the boxes and they just, and they had packaging galore. Now, mind you, it was paper packaging, which makes me happier than if they were using styrofoam. Um, styrofoam is not recyclable. It's something that we don't want to put in an incinerator and like that. We don't want to recycle styrofoam. So again, I think that maybe, you know, like someone somewhere had a good idea, but then maybe that idea kind of got lost along the way because now the question is, are you actually reducing that carbon footprint by using this subscription service or because of the packaging, the way that they're doing their, their shipping even? Like, is it is it actually increasing the carbon footprint? Hmm. Yeah, that's a lot to think about. Uh, to, to close this episode, I'd like to ask you uh, something something more personal. What yeah. What's something that's happened during the course of, of developing this business that like personally impacted you and changed the way that you see the business or, you know, the, the environment and yourself. So there's, there's a very interesting backstory to 2B0. It was actually introduced to me um, by a friend of mine who 
I'd known for a few years um, and I trusted him completely. And then it turned out that, you know, he was talking about things that were not based in reality at all. So he was able to get not only me, but other people kind of caught up with this idea about this amazing recycling robot that, you know, would do all the things that I've already discussed. But he talked about it in terms of the fact that the product already existed, that it was in not only in development, but it was actually in final phases of testing and, you know, getting getting ready to do like a, a test over in one of the airports and so forth. So anyways, and it turned out that none of this was true. <laughs> I was like, oh no, you know, so that that was a huge deal. I mean, so I, I found um, uh, I, I found myself kind of like doubting myself in general. Like, how could I be kind of like taken um, taken in like that? And and other people that, that were involved with this individual, they, they've gone through a very similar process of, of having to kind of have a reckoning as far as, you know, what was I told? Did I do something wrong, you know, that actually put me into that path? But the net result, Brett, is that all of us are actually stronger now. Like we're a lot more passionate than we were before because now we're we're being transparent and we're understanding that, you know, we have a real opportunity. So it's actually given me a lot more drive than I would have had before. Before I was excited about it. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great business. You know, I can see here's the business model, blah, blah, blah. But because of the you know, the falsehoods that were being perpetuated in that first group, um, you know, all of a sudden I realized this, this is not only too good to be true. This is like completely into the stratosphere of, of nonsense. You know, <laughs> it's just like and any normal person probably. And I say normal person, cause maybe I'm still having self doubts. Any normal person would have said, no, this is impossible. There's no way this thing is doing all these things. It's only been developing for, you know, three months or whatever. Um, but all of us were buying into it every week. It was like, oh yeah, we're so close. We're so close. So that experience has made me driven. And, and I was already like, again, very interested in what I was doing before, but now this is like my obsession to be zero is something that to me, like I'm going to make this work. I've had a lot of success in the past doing not only development from a technical perspective, but also on the promotion side as well. So, um, you know, from a promoting standpoint, I've, I've been able to tell a good story, hit the right sources and then hit the right outlets. And the next thing, you know, I had a friend calling me saying, Steve, your your web app is now on Good Morning America. Like literally it was it was right there on Good Morning America. You know, I was like, whoa, that's amazing. Um, got featured in The Wall Street Journal a couple of times. And actually, this is important. This is actually a big day because that web app that I'm talking about was actually sold today. It, it got sold. So that's like, wow, you know, that's another vindication. You know, yeah, the congrats. You Thank you. Yeah, we all do different things for different reasons. And, you know, for me, my passions are, are a multitude. You know, I, I like to, to kind of get recognition from my work. But at the same time, I can also stand back from my work and realize, am I doing a good job or can I do a better job? To me, there, there's always a process of continual improvement, no matter what I'm doing right now, whether it's a web application, a mobile app, an artificial intelligence or machine learning application. These things are always going to be better six months from now than they are right now. Um, and the key to doing team building, as you brought up before, is to make sure that we're collaboratively moving together towards these goals. So from the the prospect of our of our VC partners again we want to mitigate risk we want to move to a point where we're we're revenue positive as quickly as possible and then get to that next round of financing that will take us to the next level as well 
So we've already had some media coverage last week. That was kind of exciting to see us in the news last week. And uh, yeah, and then today with the podcast, another great opportunity. We really appreciate that. Yeah, and thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Brad. So um, I'm just going to throw in a plug at 2b0.io. It's the number zero, the, the number two letter B. So 2b0.io is the website. There's like three different streams on there as far as um, students, if you have any questions, investors, uh, consumers. And um, yeah, it, if you have any other questions, please feel free to contact us through our website. We're also on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, not so much right now. I'm trying to figure out. I think once we have a product, you know, we'll probably expand that Facebook presence, assuming they're no longer evil. And um, from there, you know, please feel free to, to, to reach out. We're also on Twitter. Great. Well, thank you very much, Steve, and have a good day, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Clearview Podcast. My